A lot of people out there are really into sport in some way, shape, or form. Some people have their teams. Some people have their particular sport that they like. And yet, even in the world of sport, there are conspiracy theories. There are rumors of misdeeds. There are curses, lots of curses. Athletes are among the most superstitious of all the groups of people, exceeded only by actors and sailors. So it should come as no surprise that there are many, many question marks in the world of sport. Now, I myself am not much of a sport guy. However, I am here with someone who is. Today, I'm speaking to Mark Fitzhenry. He is an EFL, that's English as a Foreign Language teacher here in Prague, and co-founding member of the improv troupe, the Imperfectionists, uh, also here in Prague. And uh, basically, the guy loves sport. Hi, Mark. Hey, Derek. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We do love our conspiracies in sports, and not just the players who are superstitious, but I think the reason fans believe in conspiracies is that it kind of gives them some comfort like it's a convenient reason sometimes we're about to talk about some baseball curses that are completely unrealistic there's no reason any of them would exist as curses but it's just a lot easier if the fans say well we haven't won (laughs) because of because we've been cursed instead of saying well our pitching's not good enough that's for sure that's a convenient excuse i'd like to thank mark for talking to me today and everybody out there for listening to this episode of conspiracy clearinghouse play ball sports Sports spiracies don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast and if you like what we do you can donate via our buy me a coffee page you leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see welcome to the conspiracy clearinghouse the podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So the reason for the timing of this sports-oriented Conspiracy Clearinghouse episode is because uh, just a week and a half ago on the 15th of April was Jackie Robinson Day. And that was, uh, it's a conspiracy that turned out to be true. Uh, The uh, leaders of Major League Baseball, MLB, really did make a concerted effort to keep black players out of professional baseball. And then Jackie Robinson broke that on April 15th, and thus it is Jackie Robinson Day. And of course, it is also, as Bugs Bunny said at the end of the classic 1953 cartoon, Duck, Rabbit, Duck, it's baseball season. It's the beginning of baseball season, and there's a lot of baseball here. And uh, so we're going to start off 
talking with Mark about baseball. And as you mentioned, boy, do they get into the curses, right? They certainly do. And uh, I am I am New England born and bred, born in Boston, grew up in Maine, grew up in New Hampshire. And when you do that, you cheer for the Boston Red Sox. It's not an option. And you learn very quickly, <laughs> at least this is how it was back then, you can live an awful long time before the Red Sox ever see a World Series championship. Mm. And the story goes back to 1918, actually, uh, when the Red Sox won their last World Series. Two years after that, the Red Sox made a decision to sell the player who would become arguably the greatest player ever to play the game, Babe Ruth. Uh, The money that they got from the sale helped fund a Broadway play, No, No, Nanette, put on by Red Sox owner Harry Frazee. I wish I was making this up. I'm not making this up. Uh, They sold several other players, and um, I don't know if there was ever a declaration that said, we are cursing you from now on. But uh, from that point forward, up until 2004, the Boston Red Sox lost four Game 7s of the World Series. So one win away from being a world champion and not winning it. Right, and of course, they sold the Babe, to the Yankees, who were their arch rivals. Yes, and have proceeded to win nearly 30 World Series since they got that. Uh, (laughs) So, um, yeah, and and that's what hurts the most, of course, as a Red Sox fan. I mean, it's bad enough you sell the guy, you sell him to the team that ends up being the bane of your existence. Mm -hmm. The reason it was believable as a curse, and we could just sit back and say we were cursed, Four Game 7s of a World Series is awful hard to take. (laughs) Two additional American League playoff games where you would have the right to move on in the playoffs, they lost those as well. And they also lost in really heartbreaking fashion. They were actually one strike away in 1986 several times and still didn't beat the Mets. So, yeah, yeah. And I specifically remember a friend telling me after they lost to the Mets, it's like, the Red Sox are never going to win, ever. Ever. And I'm just, oh, this can't be true. And I thought it was true. And every Red Sox fan did think it was true. Until we finally won in 2004 by uh, beating the Cardinals in the World Series. And before that, how satisfying is this? Beating the Yankees to get to the World Series after falling behind three games to none. Oh, boy. That, that, that feels good as a fan. I, uh, I'm with you on that. I, I literally don't remember the five seconds after the Red Sox won. I blanked. <laughs> I, I'm not joking. I wish I could say how I, I wish I could. <laughs> I drank 18 bottles of whiskey and killed a nun. <laughs> <laughs> I might have. Um, <laughs> my mind was a total blank. And and the funny thing is now that uh, the, the curse has been broken, no team has actually won more World Series since the turn of the millennium than the Red Sox have. So 1918 is when the Curse of the Mambino uh, started for the Boston Red Sox. The following year, 1919, the Chicago White Sox had a bit of a scandal that many fans thought also resulted in a curse. Yes, and and there's no doubt about this. Um, They threw the World Series. There is zero doubt about this. The players took money from gamblers to throw the World Series. Uh, The owner of the White Sox, Charles Comiskey, was notoriously cheap. Notoriously cheap, by the way, in an era where every owner was notoriously cheap. 
Um, even so, other owners were like, Jesus, he's cheap. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, they took the money to, and threw the series. Um, this is not up for debate. Uh, just for people that are unaware, the reason that it's called the Black Sox scandal, the team was called the White Sox, but Black Sox because, you know, uh, they did bad, and so a black mark upon them. Exactly. That's yeah. where it came from. So I think the reason the Black Sox curse was never as sexy as the Red Sox curse was because they never came as close as the Red Sox did. Mm. And also, throwing a World Series is significantly a more heinous crime than selling your best player to your rival. For no, no, Nanette, For I would n- just like to reiterate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that curse existed, I suppose, but it just never really caught traction because it was never as... Um, because they deserved it. You know, you throw mm. a World Series, you, you shouldn't have to win a World Series. And then finally, um, you know, they broke the curse the year after the Red Sox broke theirs. So in back-to-back seasons, you had the Red Sox and the uh, White Sox winning World Series for the first time in more than eight decades. Which is kind of amazing, which means since, you know, they're a year apart at the beginning, a year apart at the end, each curse lasted the exact same amount of time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, staying in Chicago, we go to the Cubs and the Curse of the Billy Goat. What's that all about? Well, it's called the Curse of the Billy Goat because it involves an actual Billy Goat. <laughs> now, <laughs> this actually happened 37 years after the Cubs had won their last World Series. So it's 1945. So they already had a curse. So they already <laughs> they already were struggling, right? Yeah. Game four of their World Series with the Tigers, there was a man named William Billy Goat Cianis who was asked to leave Wrigley Field because he had brought his pet goat with him. Like a, like a dog on a leash. Yes, uh-huh. yes. And, and, and of course, as you can imagine, pet goat owners everywhere were just furious about this because, you know, you know how common pet goats are. Oh, uh, everywhere. They're everywhere. You can't walk in the park without tripping over them. Basically, it was bothering other fans. It's like, oh, goat smells. Let's get him out of here. So Sienis leaves the stadium and shouted, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more. And they lost the World Series in 1945. And they didn't even get back to the World Series until 2016. Ooh. Less about kicking out the billy goat, more about your team being terrible, your pitching not good enough, your offense not being good enough, uh, just not spending your money wisely. They just, they just did everything bad as a franchise for as long as they did. And in 2016, uh, which was 108 years after they had uh, won their previous World Series, in a Game 7, in Cleveland, against a team also going centuries without winning a World Series. They won this amazing seesaw Game 7, just setting off absolute elation in Chicago. And it's just, 2016 was just this amazing year in sports where the Cubs won and Leicester won the English Premier League. And just all these all these insane stories were happening in 2016. Now, uh, staying, you mentioned they were playing in Cleveland when they won, Ohio. Uh, Cincinnati, one of the other big cities in that state, was accused of some shenanigans in 1961. So what happened here, the Reds are leading the Dodgers by four games in the standings with only a few games left. Basically, they could still play badly and still win the National League pennant. The Dodgers ended up winning their last five games, the Reds lost their last four games, and there was a tie for first place. According to a popular conspiracy theory, the Reds actually 
through their last few games. Mm. And some fans and baseball experts believe the Reds had lost on purpose because losing this on purpose to the Dodgers was actually better than turning around and getting killed by the Yankees in the World Series. Ah, so they knew who their opponents would be in the World Series, and they were like, we'll try again next year. Right, because uh-huh. back in 1961, there was, for those who follow baseball, now there are all these division series and wild card series and league championship series and all this. But back then, it's just the two league champions. National League champion went, the American League champion went. And this is the year with the Yankees that Roger Maris hit 61 homers, so that was the all-time record uh, at the time, and they were just too good. So, um, yeah, the Yankees were going to play in the World Series. Everyone knew it. But it's just funny to me that the Reds would actually think this way. Like, actually not going to the World Series was better than going to the World Series and getting your butt kicked. But the Reds manager, Fred Hutchinson, had started his second string players in the final games of the season without explanation. The Reds denied that they were doing anything wrong and said they were just playing poorly. But this has persisted over the years that they're, you know, that they threw this. But... As with most conspiracies like this, no concrete evidence. Right. There's no 1961 email that we could (laughs) uncover and go, hey, where he's laughing about it or something. I think a lot of fans come up with this stuff. You almost call them fan theories because their team loses and they're trying to find. Because nobody, like you said, nobody wants to go. The people I really want to win suck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's a bit of schadenfreude as well. We believe conspiracy theories because we want to believe that, oh, the league wanted this team to play in the NBA finals or Mm -hmm. the league wants this team to succeed. I'm not really sure about Japan in 1985 other than it's just a funny story. Japan loves baseball. They don't get to participate in the World Series, which is funny, but they love Baseball, though the fans are decidedly more well-behaved than they are in the United States. I don't think anybody's bringing a goat to the stadium <laughs> in Osaka, you know. But what? tell me about this thing that happened in Japan in the mid-'80s. I would love to say love their baseball in Japan. And I've seen a game in Japan. I've seen two games in Japan, and the fans are well-behaved, but they also sing all the time, by the way. When, when their team is up, they sing songs, and each player has their own song, and wow. it's incredible to watch. It's fun. And nowhere in Japan are fans crazier about their team than Osaka for the Hanshin Tigers. And in 1985, the Hanshin Tigers won the Japan Series. And the fans went down to the big downtown district along the Dotombori River and celebrated. And the way they celebrated was someone would shout out the name of one of the players on the Hanshin Tigers. And if you looked like that player, you jumped into the river. And this happened player after player after player. Now, the first baseman for the Hanshin Tigers was an American named Randy Bass. And someone shouted out the name, Randy Bass! And you can imagine at this point, no one in Osaka at the party... None of those Japanese people look like him. They look like him. (laughs) You know who does look like him? Colonel Sanders. Ah. So they took a statue outside of KFC of Colonel Sanders, and they threw him into the Dotombori River. And ever since, just one guess, Derek, just one guess. They've never won again. They've never won a Japan series since then. The curse of the colonel. Yes. 
Uh, we're going to move on to a different sport, American football, which the Americans call football, but uh, we're going to call American football. And uh, the 2007 NFL Spygate, and I know this one kind of gets you right in the feels there, Mark, because you are a New England Patriots guy, and I am not. And so uh, I'd love to hear your take on this, because uh, it all seems pretty pretty dirty. We're going to start by saying the one thing that is true. Bill Belichick, who is the coach of the New England Patriots, was filming coaches of other teams making signals to their teams during games. And he was filming them from a place where the rules stated you could not film them. Now, coaches could be in the coaching box, look at the signals, take notes, and it would be fine. But what the Patriots chose to do was film them from places they were not allowed to film them from, such as behind the end zone. And um, this was a practice that went on for no one knows how long, but but years, uh, at least back to 2002. So when the league found out about this, they fined the Patriots $250,000. The coach, Bill Belichick, was fined $500,000. And that was the largest fine ever imposed on the coach at that time. Mm. And they were forced to forfeit the first round draft pick in 2008. All right. So they, they got spanked. They got, they got punished. Sure. Now, the NFL had all this evidence, but then they destroyed it. What? So other teams didn't get to look at it. So the conspiracy theory within the conspiracy theory was that the NFL didn't want the other teams to know exactly how bad the Patriots were doing this. So we really don't know the extent of what they did. And the result of this is any time something has looked a little bit off kilter, it goes straight to the Patriots must be cheating. <laughs> So, I mean, this happened in a game with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, Coach Mike Tomlin's headset lost communication with his coaches in Foxborough, where the Patriots play. And he immediately is like, well, gee, what a coincidence that is. You know, there was a story that the Patriots filmed the St. Louis Rams walkthrough practice before Super Bowl 36, which Uh the Patriots won. And that was published before the Patriots played Super Bowl 42 against the Giants. But it turned out not to be true. Peyton Manning one time, when, the, when he was with the Broncos, told the team bus before their final walkthrough before a game with the Patriots, no, 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 go here. They did a walkthrough in a field far away from the stadium just to guarantee the Patriots not filming it. <laughs> so as a fan, you accept that Coach Belichick filmed where he, where he shouldn't have filmed. He has said that. But then it's just... It, it just explodes into all sorts of, oh, this must be the reason they won everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the Gatorade buckets are bugged or, (laughs) you know, the the, the staff is stealing the opponent team's play sheets and stuff like that. And it was just uh, so. So just to let you know, the one key part of context I forgot was before they were fined and punished for Spygate, they won Super Bowls three times. Ah. And then after they were caught with Spygate, their response was to kick the crap out of every team in the league, and they went 16-0 in the regular season, the only team to do that, yeah. won both their playoff games, <sighs> this sentence is so hard, and lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl. Aww. Thank you. That sounded sincere. <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming the Giants are their... The New York, we're talking about the New York Giants. Yeah. The New York Giants are their great rivals. Well, well, they're not because they don't play them every year, but New York fans are the bane of Boston fans' existence. So right. like, of all the fan bases to watch celebrate this... 
that's at the bottom of the list. You don't want to see that happen. Right. Of course, uh, just a few years later in 2015, uh, Patriots quarterback Tom Brady would get in trouble, not for exploding things, but for sort of imploding them. So, oh, you know, I look back at this story. <laughs> this, no, no. I, I know it hurts. I know it well, hurts. Well, if I'm you actually. You take a moment. You can take a moment. I, I know. It's unfair I've, for me to do all this Patriots stuff. No, no, no. It, it's, it's understandable because this is, this is the thing. This actually ties into Spygate really well. Uh. So they're, they're playing. They're playing a playoff game uh, against the Ravens. So this, this is in 2015, which means it's at the end of the 2014 season. Mm-hmm. And little did the Patriots know that while they were playing the Ravens, the Ravens, who ended up like getting an interception of Tom Brady, meaning they had the ball that Brady was using, had less air than it felt should be in the ball. And the Patriots went on to beat the Ravens. And before the Patriots played the Colts, the Ravens gave the Colts a heads up about this and said, if you get your hands on the ball, check. And this is a problem because a slightly deflated ball will be easier to grip and hold on to. Uh, in this case, yes. Uh, th- there's a certain range where the ball should have with in terms of the air pressure. Slippery, they're slippery little suckers. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 so there's, there's a range of PSI that they're, with the air pressure in the ball Aaron Rodgers, for example, actually likes it harder. But if it's slightly deflated, it would make it easier to grip, easier to throw, and especially if the weather's bad, which in Foxborough, of course, it's bad. So in the first half against the Colts, a game that the Patriots won comfortably, the Colts had an interception, took the ball, and immediately went to an official and said, this thing isn't right. So they tested all the balls at halftime, and several of the Patriots balls uh, were, were tested at below the level. Now, the Patriots argued, and I think there is merit to this, the, the ideal gas law comes into play, which is basically this. When, when it's cold outside, it's going to lose air. And when the ball goes mm. back inside and warms up, it's going to fill up with air. Mm. The, the, the officials tested the Colts balls as well. One of their balls also had less than uh, should have been in there, but, but the rest of them do, did not at the ones that they tested anyway. They didn't even test all the balls that the Colts were using. And if you're asking, wait a minute, don't both teams use the same ball? No. In the National Football League, the Patriots decide this is, these are the balls we want to use when we're playing and we're on offense, and then the opponent would do the same thing. So this is where it's a shame that there are two weeks in between the championship game and the Super Bowl because guess what we heard for two weeks straight? Every expert under the sun, including Bill Nye, the science guy on ESPN, talking about air pressure in footballs. And so basically for the Super Bowl, the balls were guarded. Oh, there's one thing I'm not mentioning. <laughs> Apparently, the equipment manager for the Patriots before the team went onto the field took the bag of footballs and went into a bathroom. And this ah. is, and this is and one of the New York papers, I forget which one, actually took a bag of footballs, walked into a bathroom and tested if they could deflate all of them in the amount of time it would have been needed if, you know, they yeah. were the equipment manager for the Patriots. And surprise surprise, the New York paper said yes, there was time to do it. I mean, you have to admit that looks pretty squirrely. It does look squirrely. I'm not going So was, by the way, uh, text messages from Brady to the assistant manager calling him the deflator. I, <laughs> I'm not making that up. Well, I think that's kind of a slam dunk on Deflategate. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's in, now, did they get in trouble? 
they did get in trouble. They were fined a million dollars and lost a first-round draft pick in 2016 and a first-round pick in 2017. Brady played all of the games the following season as he appealed, but the season after that, he had to sit out the first four games. Yes. Uh, So the difference between Spygate and Deflategate was immediately after Spygate, Patriots couldn't win another Super Bowl. Two weeks after the flake gate broke when the NFL said, no, 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 we're going to keep all the balls secret and we're just going to, you know, you're going to use the balls we give you. Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl and went on to win two other Super Bowls. I'm not going to say there was no merit to it because we, we, when you talk about some of the things we've talked about, certainly they're not above trying that. Clearly. But out of proportion, I mean, just it was just nuts. Now, the NFL actually said, you know what, we're going to listen to the Patriots. We're going to run some tests to see if the ideal gas law can come into play and what cold weather effect is on footballs and their air pressure. Would you like to know the results of that? I would. They have not been released Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine the Patriots might have had a point. Hmm. Again, I'm a Patriots fan. I, yeah, but yes. So that's the Patriots and American football. And of course, there are lots of other stories out there uh, from that sport. But we're going to move on to football, football, which uh, the Americans call soccer, uh, the most popular sport in the world by far the world cup is uh, astronomical in its viewership and uh, even though everybody complains about it uh people still watch it heck even i watch it and i'm not really i don't actually care that much so we're gonna go to this sport and we're gonna talk about the world cup specifically in 1966 going way back in the way back machine way back in the way back machine before i start with that i do want to say that Football, it does lend itself to a lot of conspiracy theories for a simple reason. It's played all around the world. And and so a lot of conspiracies come up. One of my favorite ones was there was a television station in the Middle East that ran highlights of a Barcelona goal and insisted that they were telling the Syrian revolutionaries how to deliver weapons to the rebels. Based on the in, highlights. In the, in the way that he physically made the goal? Like in the, with in his the, body language? In the way that the team played and put the players on the pitch and passed and moved and stuff like that. Yeah, that's wow. how. Like, I, look, I'm not <laughs> trying to profile here, but I, I think we know that uh, the Middle East lends itself towards conspiratorial thinking <laughs> uh, for a number of reasons. I think a lot of post-colonial nations uh, have this in their um, sort of psyche and in their cultural makeup. But that seems... Ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Of course it is. <laughs> Football is also one of the few sports I know of that has conspiracy theories that everyone basically agrees on, which is if you host a tournament, the host team should be in an easier group so they can get through. And this is almost accepted. And for the longest time, the host nation had always gone through in the World Cup. That's a streak that stopped in 2010 with South Africa. But it reminds me of, of the 1996 Olympics when the U.S. hosted those Olympics, mm. and they had the draw for the tournament, and they got Argentina, and I don't remember... And keep in mind, of people who don't know, Argentina is maybe the best team in the world, certainly one of the top five for sure. Yeah, yeah, year in and year out, they're one of the five teams in the world that can honestly say, we, we should win the tournament, or we can win the tournament. Yeah. So the U.S. is drawn with them, and I don't remember the quote exactly, but Bruce Arena basically said, geez, our country doesn't even know how to cheat properly. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the shame, the shame of it. <laughs> and this brings us to England, the country that invented the game. We're going to talk about the 1966 World Cup, but before we do that, we need to go back to 1930. We do, because that was the year of the first World Cup, and England did not go. And in 1934, they did not go. And nor did they go in 1938. And there are actually archives where they found documents that basically said it was English arrogance. It's like, we invented the game. We already know we're the best in the world. Why do we have to prove it in a tournament? Why do we have to go? Even in 1934... Just when, give us the cup. Just give us the cup. <laughs> Even in 1934, when the tournament's in Italy, they didn't go. Right. Italy wins the World Cup. England invites Italy to Wembley Stadium to play them. The English press, in all their restraint, call it the real World Cup final. Even though they already had the real World Cup final, and it was in Italy, but apparently this one had to be at Wembley, and England won, of course. And then after those first three World Cups, there was the World War II, in which there were no World Cups. And then when 1950 came around, that was the first World Cup post-World War II. And England said, yes, we'll be happy to provide since our you, presence. Since so many of you came and helped us out with, with the Nazis, uh, we, we feel appreciative. We'll play. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so again, this, they're, they're still considered the best team in the world or certainly in the conversation. And 1950 is actually this, the, when the U.S. pulled off one of the greatest upsets in World Cup history when a bunch of amateurs beat England 1-0. It, it was such an upset that this is actually true. When the score came over uh, to the press, a lot of press people thought, oh, this is a misprint. England won 10-0. <laughs> they thought it was 10-0. <laughs> no, no. The U.S. won 1-0. It, it was that surprising. It was a bunch of amateurs. Uh-huh. And, and England, which had stayed away from World Cups because why do we have to prove anything? Mm. So England not only played four World Cups from 1950 to 1962 without even making the final, but they won approximately a third of their games. Ouch. Yeah. But they were hosting the tournament in 1966. Mm. And boy, wouldn't it be great if the country that invented football and was hosting the World Cup and had an Englishman run FIFA win the World Cup. Mm. Now... Most people, when they talk about the 1966 World Cup, talk about Jeff Hurst's goal uh, against Germany that gave him a 3-2 lead that it never crossed the line. It, it didn't. But what they don't talk about that much is the conspiracy theory that's out there that England and West Germany actually conspired to knock the South American powers out of the tournament early. They're just too darn good. Yeah, and Brazil was considered the best team in the world. They had won the 1962 World Cup in Chile, and they had this bright, young superstar player you may have heard of, Pele. Of course. Yeah? Yeah, Uh, And Brazil was so welcome that when they arrived in England, uh, the transport that was supposed to take them to the training pitch wasn't there. And then when they got to the training pitch, it wasn't suitable to train on. So welcome to England. Now. That's not cricket. (laughs) (laughs) now before i continue i need to say this there's been no proof that england conspired and worked behind the scenes to earn this world cup uh but the following things are also true in brazil's group they had three group matches and you have to finish in the top two among your four teams to go on to the next round to the quarterfinals all three of brazil's matches in the group were officiated either by an english referee or a west german referee In all three games, it is accepted 
that Brazil players got the holy hell kicked out of them. Pele was even injured in the first game and did not play in the second game. And Brazil did not get out of the group. So that's one team down. Next is Argentina and Uruguay. Mm. And, and we should mention this. The, the, the fact that European football and South American football had this clash of cultures and, and wanted to, oh, we're better. No, we're better. It, that's true. Mm. That, that rivalry was there. So there's a story actually about a referee. I, don't, I cannot remember his name or what country he came from, but he did not come from one of the traditional football countries. But he was on the way to the hotel where they would hand out the refereeing assignments for the quarterfinals. And it was at a certain time. And when he got there, he was told, no, 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 we've assigned the referees. We're good. We're done. Keep in mind, the head of FIFA and the man in charge of assigning the referees or approving it was English. So you had one quarterfinal between Argentina and England, and that was refereed by West German. You had another quarterfinal between Uruguay and West Germany, refereed by an Englishman. The English referee handed out two red cards. Actually, there were no cards at the time, so he sent off two Uruguay players, so they had to play two men down, and West Germany won that. England and Argentina, the Argentine captain was sent off in the first half. They had to play 60 minutes with a man down, and England won the match. So Brazil, gone. Uruguay, gone. Argentina, gone. All those matches of importance refereed by someone from England or West Germany. Now, the final. Guess who played in the final? One guess. England. And? Germany. England and West Germany played in the final. Uh, the English won 4-2. to two. If you don't know about it, just hang around an England football fan for three seconds and they'll tell you. <laughs> Now, here's the thing about the conspiracy theory, because you want the conspiracy to be valid, right? If you don't like England, for example, and a lot of countries in, in the football sense don't, you want this conspiracy theory to be true. It kind of helps that England hasn't even been to a World Cup final since this. So it's like, uh, it's like their own curse of the billy goat, curse of the, curse of the referees. <laughs> the curse of the penalty kicks actually but yeah, yeah. <laughs> now the funny thing is there's actually a, an interview on the fifa website with the captain of that argentine team who said well if this world cup had been in argentina we would have won right. now 12 years later boy was he right mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it's also very easy to say and you know i think a lot of times unless it's obvious that wow we really we blew chunks today out there on the field or on the pitch it's it's a common thing to go like yeah we was robbed that is true and in the end england's players have to do their job and they have to score they did score four goals in the well three of the balls crossed the line but they were credited with four goals in the final you know they still had to they still had to play and and there's only so much a referee can do even though i will say this in football it's quite easy to fix matches you all you have to do is call a penalty at the right time Mm. And uh, penalty kick, and there you go. There's a bunch of uh, hinky stuff in the football world and with South America. Uh, maybe you remember, I remember hearing something about there were links to Operation Condor uh, and the Dirty War. All of these were talked about actually in a previous episode of this podcast, um, but not the football angle. What was that all about? Well, in 1978, Argentina was hosting the World Cup. And uh, to, even to this day, it's actually called the Dirty World Cup. 
<laughs> yeah. And uh, the president of Argentina, Jorge Videla, who was a brutal, brutal dictator, is thinking, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we're hosting the World Cup that we actually win it? Boy, that would be... <laughs> shades, of, shades of England. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but much sadder and also, and also more evidence that, um, that they actually did uh, resort to underhanded means. For example, there's one story out there, unproven, that teams accused Argentines of having tons of amphetamines in them because they were so much fitter and ran so much more than their opponent. And as one story goes, not that they cheated on their urine tests, but according to the urine tests that the Argentine team gave to the judges, two of their players were pregnant. (laughs) And there was already some underhanded stuff going on. Um, Back in, in these days, when you played in groups... You didn't have to play the final game of the group at the same time, which is done now to eliminate some match fixing, where a team who plays last would say, well, all we need to do is draw 1-1 and both of us go through, so why don't we just draw 1-1, blah, 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 and we both go through. Argentina always had the last match among, you know, their group, so they would Mm. always know what they needed. Mm. Now, in this year's World Cup, before the final, there was a group of four, and the top two teams from that group of four would go on to the final. So in this World Cup, now, nowadays there's usually a knockout round where you start with 16 teams and then it goes down to 8-4-2. In this World Cup, there were two groups of four uh, after the first group stages, and then the winner of each group of four would then play in the final. The Netherlands won their group. Brazil was about to win their group, And in order for Argentina to top Brazil, they had one match against Peru, which was really good at the time. They had to beat Peru 4-0. They won 6-0. Wow, isn't that good? It is good, but it's um, not what you would expect Peru to do. Not not at that stage. It's a very odd result. Um, That's a a spanking. That's a spanking against (laughs) a very good team. And, of course, the accusations start flying afterwards saying, wow, what did Argentina offer? Who did they threaten? What did they do to get this? And there have been all sorts of uh, stories involving cash payments or shipments of wheat to Peru or political favors and such. But, you know, for Argentina to need a 4-0 victory and to win 6-0 is a head-scratcher. For sure. And uh, Brazil was not happy, uh, as you can imagine. Yeah, Argentina went on to beat the Dutch in the final, and th- that was their first World Cup, actually. So, And they've gone on to win two since then. Uh, now, you mentioned earlier that uh, of all the sports, basketball seems to be one of the ones that uh, attracts more conspiracy theories, especially rumors of fixing and so on, uh, than anything else. And I think the most famous one there is about the first draft lottery in 1985 and the infamous frozen envelope. Well, first of all, before we talk about this one in particular, the reason the NBA leaves itself rife to conspiracy theories is because it is the easiest sport to fix, even easier than football, uh, uh. worldwide football, because there's only five players on the court at once. If you wanted to, you could call a foul on every play. If you wanted to, you could ignore a foul on every play. So it's really easy, especially for an official, 
to impact the game that way. Mm -hmm. And the other reason it's rife with conspiracy theories is because the former commissioner of the NBA, David Stern, helped turn the NBA from this league where the NBA finals were held on tape delay to this absolute worldwide behemoth that just cranked out money like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, it's it's actually quite funny. Do yourself a favor and do a Google search of countries where basketball is one of the top three sports. You will be surprised at how many countries mm. are into basketball. Well, the Balkans, for sure, just coming off the top of my head there, for sure, they, they love it there. But with David Stern, he, it was no secret that he wanted the league to have a high profile. And one easy way for any league to be high profile is to have your New York team be good. And why is that? Because New York is such a high profile city? Well, and also they have, a, they have the most people in the U.S. So if the team is good, more people are going to watch the national uh, games. And yeah. if more people watch, watch the national games, you can ask for more ad revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it snowballs into, look how much ad revenue we're being in. Surely you can pay more rights to broadcast the NBA. And it just snowballs on, on, onto there. So in 1985... They instituted a draft lottery. Now, what normally happens if you're not familiar with how American professional sports works is they don't have promotion and relegation like a lot of the football leagues in the world. But what happens is if you finish last, you get the first pick the next time. That's very fair. Yeah. And so they have this draft with all these college players or in some cases high school players and instead of this free-for-all of free agents you have a draft so if you were terrible you get a better draft pick nba teams knew this and teams would tank this is not a conspiracy this is true Uh teams that knew they were not going to make the playoffs decided why don't we just be terrible and get the first pick? We will always find a way to game any system, won't we? Yeah. And, and it's even happening in baseball now, too. If, you, if you're familiar with the Houston Astros, the reason they're as good as they are now is for two or three years, they tanked. They had a bunch of good draft picks. They drafted well, and uh, they had the core stars that have helped them. Uh, now they're the World Series champions. Mm. Uh, but so the NBA said, we're going to stop this nonsense of tanking. So with this draft lottery... Every team that did not make the playoffs gets their logo placed in an envelope. Okay. All right. And then they put it in this ball, the same type of ball that you would use to, you know, draw lottery numbers from. Right. The big spitty. The big drum. Yeah. Yeah, The drum. And the first envelope out, you get the first overall pick of the upcoming draft. And theoretically, a potential franchise player that could be the cornerstone of your team for years. Right. So it's random now. Yes, and and they have since changed the system so there's more weight involved. So if you finish last, you have a better chance than a team that just missed the playoffs, but it's not so obvious that you want to finish last. But in 1985, you miss the playoffs, you get the same chance as everybody, a one-in-whatever teams that didn't make the playoffs get it. The New York Knicks were in the draft lottery. They did not make the playoffs. And some some years, it's obvious who the number one draft pick is going to be. Just so people know, these draft picks are college students uh, and free agents and stuff, people who aren't already with a team who haven't played in the NBA before and you're trying to pick them to be, basically, this is their debut on the, in the right. show. 
Right, right, right. And and in, back in these days, it was college players. Right. Uh, it has since included high school players. There are more and more high school players who say, I don't want to go to college, although that's the way it was. It's actually changed. Now players have to go to college for one year. <laughs> How fun is that? Nonetheless, so Patrick Ewing, who was a seven-foot center for Georgetown University, which was a powerhouse back uh, in those days, a clear number one pick. And it was obvious whoever got the number one pick was going to pick him, and he would be a star center and the center of your team for years to come. Right, because he's young and and a giant. Yes, yes, (laughs) and and, and good, and good. And and, and talented, yes. Yes, so... As a conspiracy theory goes, David Stern's thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great if Patrick Ewing ended up in New York? Wouldn't it be great if the the number one market in the NBA had Patrick Ewing Mm. and and could generate this excitement in the biggest market that we have? So the theory goes, they took the envelope with the New York Knicks logo on it and put it in the freezer. So it was colder than every other envelope. Oh, right. So there's no marks on it or anything, but it's colder than every other one. And you drop it into the drum and you spin it. And sure enough, ah. the New York Knicks, were they got the first pick. And this theory, I think at the time, it would not have been unreasonable for fans to think, gee, I wonder how New York is going to end up with this thing. There is a video clip on YouTube in which... Stern, as he's fiddling through the envelopes, pauses a bit before selecting the envelope that ends up having the Knicks logo. Mm. And now, now, you and I both know conspiracies exist because people believe what they want to believe. There could be various other reasons yeah, Stern we're, we're, pauses. We're storytelling creatures. We, we're, yeah. we're looking for a good story, and, and that's a good story, especially yeah. if you're not a Knicks fan. It's believable. Now, I'm not saying, you know, there's evidence. It's but, also kind of clever. But it's clever and believable. Like, what's the motivation for having the star player in New York? Well, you know, what, what I said earlier. I mean, the motivation is there. We have to say, for the record, David Stern has been asked flat out, did you do this? Well, what's he going to do? Say yes? Eh. <laughs> yeah, I totally did it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but obviously, he has denied it the whole time. Yes. So we've really just scratched the surface here of the vast world of sports conspiracies. Any sports fan out there probably is walking around with five or six or seven in their back pocket, uh, ready to trot out at any time to anyone and everyone who will listen. And uh, friendships are made and broken as different theories of this wrongdoing or that wrongdoing or a curse or a gypsy curse or all these different things uh, get bandied about the bar room and the locker room. I'm very glad I had my guest with me today, Mr. Mark Fitzhenry, who is, as I said, an English teacher here in the Czech Republic in Prague and one of the founding members of the improv group, The Imperfectionists. Uh, Thanks for talking to me today about this, uh, Mark, because I would have honestly been just summarizing Wikipedia pages because I don't (laughs) I don't know anything about this stuff. And so it's it's, uh, I thought it would be good to have a fan on here and someone who um, who cares. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was great. And I think the one takeaway, the two takeaways people should have here. uh, Number one, conspiracy theories exist in sports to help people believe what they want to believe, generally speaking. And and the more believable they are, the more fun they actually are. And the second thing is, 
the New England Patriots would never cheat. Oh. Ever. They are the greatest thing oh. about the United States of America oh. that there is. You're oh. welcome. And that is absolutely true, except for the times that they totally cheated. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody out there for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse and Play Ball! Thank you for visiting the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.